What is worth more, art or life? Is it worth more than food? Worth more than justice? That was a climate activist speaking moments after she threw tomato soup at Van Gogh's sunflowers in the National Gallery in London last year. She then glued herself to the gallery wall. Headline-making stunts have become a familiar tactic for climate activism in recent years. The Mona Lisa has had food thrown at her several times, all in an effort to call attention to the climate crisis. But what motivates a person to take such action? Author and academic Dana Fisher. As the climate crisis worsens, people who are experiencing that will be more likely to get aggressive because they have more on the line. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, can throwing soup at the Mona Lisa help fight climate change? Dana, on January the 28th, members of a climate activist group, Riposte Alimentaire, apologies for the ropey French pronunciation, it means food counterattack. They threw pumpkin soup at the Mona Lisa in the Louvre in Paris. As a sociologist and an expert on our understanding of the climate crisis, you explore climate activism. That attack made headlines. Has being newsworthy become as important as the message? I actually would say that being newsworthy has always been as important as the message. And, you know, this type of uh, what we can call like the radical fringe type of an action, these micro protests that are targeting art are a great example of what we call in the social science world, a radical flank for the climate movement. In this case, it was actually also what we call a tactical diffusion of a tactic going from the climate movement into really more the food justice movement, which is what this group is focused on, although they have interest in climate change, of course. And um, this is very much a standard way of trying to get attention for an issue. People in, uh, in earlier movements have also tried very hard to get media coverage and engage in these very performative, action-grabbing protests to do so. I think it's wonderful it has been so peaceful so far. And, you know, the question that um, Oscar Berglund, Colin Davis and I ask in Nature in November is actually how long we will see these kinds of quote unquote radical actions be so peaceful. Well, you'll be familiar, of course, with Roger Hallam. He's the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. And he said, only through disruption, the breaking of laws, do you get the attention you need? Is that you know, pretty much the mantra of the more radical element within climate activism? Well, in terms of the radical element within climate activism, um, so I have a new book that's just coming out next week, in fact, called Saving Ourselves from Climate Shocks to Climate Action. Within the book, I actually break apart this kind of more uh, confrontational component of the climate movement into two factions. And one faction is a group that I call the shockers. The shockers are following this kind of a, an approach and philosophy based on, you know, the words of Roger Hallam is one of the people whom they try to emulate when they do their actions, as well as a number of other uh, leaders within the movement. Shockers are really focused on shocking us into paying attention. And they do so by trying to get media attention. I mean, one of the things that people don't talk about as much as I think they should is the degree to which the mainstream media has paid attention to people throwing pumpkin soup at, you know, the Mona Lisa or throwing tomato soup at a Van Gogh 
or you know other types of actions like this. That's the reason that these works of art are being targeted. And it's worth noting, the activists have only so far targeted works of art uh, that are protected. And that's really, you know, interesting to think about because it's not very radical to throw soup on a, you know, some sort of, I guess it's glass, fiberglass, whatever it is, covering. And it doesn't create much damage, but it does get attention. Um, one of my co-authors actually posted after the Mona Lisa action that um, the reason they're doing it is because of this. And then he showed a screenshot of the front page of the Washington Post, which had the video of the art being um the soup going on the art, and then next to it, the organization's name and its goals. And that's it. I mean, basically, there it is. They succeeded in what they wanted because they got the word out and they got a platform so much higher than it was only two activists. Two people were able to do that. And obviously, it was a, a very coordinated action. And they did it when there weren't that many people around and they were able to make it behind the um, the security area. And I thought it was fascinating how the security guards quickly covered up the whole thing, you know, so you couldn't see what was happening behind it. So that was quite interesting. To go back to your question, at the same time that we have these shockers, we also have a group which I call disruptors. And the group that are the disruptors within the radical flank, they're engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience, but they're also embedding it within broader campaigns. And there are a number of examples of this that I talk about in my new book. Uh, one of the best ones is the divestment campaign on university campuses where these activists are working very hard to get the universities to, to divest from fossil fuels. And while they're working inside the system, lobbying the you know, university administration, working through alumni networks, simultaneously they identify specific moments in time for targeted nonviolent civil disobedience to get media attention where they can then point attention, you know, get more public attention and awareness about their campaigns by then disrupting. Uh, a good example of this is when uh, the divest Harvard activists actually stormed the Harvard-Yale football game, which is a huge event for alumni, as well as people who are at those two universities. And they got all this media attention and they used the media attention from disrupting the game to, show, to shine light on this divestment movement, which was much more embedded within what they were doing in other types of actions and tactics. And so I think it's worth thinking about how these two schools are quite different. The kinds of actions that we've seen with art galleries and targeting works of art is absolutely the work of shockers. And it has been quite successful. But what we're going to what we have to expect at this point is that there will be um, there will have to be innovation in those tactics to continue to pay attention. I mean, I, when right after the soup was thrown last week, I think I said to my husband, well, that's it. That I mean, that's the crown jewel, right? Once you target the Mona Lisa, what's next? I mean, the Sistine Chapel, you can't really get you know, food thrown up there, they're going to need to scale up. And the two ways that we know from the literature and from doing research on social movements over the years and understanding radical flanks is they will either scale up by becoming more confrontational, more aggressive. Sometimes we see violence taking place, although we haven't really at this point within the climate movement. I do not expect to see that. Rather, I think that what they'll have to do is target slightly differently to continue getting attention because another you know, another work of art that gets paint or food thrown on it will probably not get as much attention anymore. Can we talk about the response within France, the official response, if you like? Now, the, look, the French are very effective, very organised protesters. French farmers, they you know effectively blocked access to Paris, the entire city. Um, and after the soup was thrown at the Da Vinci masterpiece, Rashida Dati, that's the French Minister for Culture, said... No cause 
could justify the Mona Lisa being targeted. Is she missing the point there? Certainly, I think she's missing the point. And it's interesting coming from France because France has been quite progressive and has been trying very hard to take you know, meaningful climate action in terms of the way that they're doing congestion pricing and other types of efforts to try to reduce carbon consumption within the country. Well, as the Minister for Cultural Affairs, I think it makes sense to do whatever you can to dissuade people from targeting art, because while this um, effort and this action was really not very disruptive, it can lead to more disruptive efforts. So, so I think that she's missing the point because the point is to disrupt enough to get attention and these kinds of tactics do get attention. I'm not saying that people should go out and, and mess with works of art all the time, but I, I think that there needs to be a platform for climate activists and other activists to be able to get their, their voices heard. And unfortunately, research has shown and activists have lamented the fact that they get a lot more attention for two people throwing soup on a coating on a work of art than they do for having over 100,000 people in the streets. Now, activism is a very broad spectrum. I mean, it ranges from people you know, who sit on their sofas and tweet about the climate crisis and they consider themselves activists to people you know, who chain themselves to oil rigs. But briefly, in your research, what are the tipping points that transform individuals from, you know, passive sympathizers to activists? In my research, you know, in the work that I've done over the years around uh, civic engagement and activism, which uh, I like to think of it as a spectrum from engaging, engaging politically as a citizen, engaging as an individual in a community to collective action that can involve the tweet storms. We saw it around the Willow Project. I know a lot of young people in the United States were highly engaged in this, you know, TikTok campaign, which was ineffective versus getting out in the streets and, you know, crazy gluing or chaining. And um, the big question that we still struggle with is what gets people off the sofas and into the streets first? And that I think is increasingly important as we see lots of people focusing on using social media from the comfort of their homes rather than actually doing anything in real life. So there's a there's still a big question there. Um, I know from talking to my graduate students in my activism class last week about the role that these TikTok campaigns played in achieving any climate action and their recognition that they didn't do much, even though so many people were posting on TikTok. I think that there's going to be a lot more attention to the kinds of in-person actions that can happen. In terms of thinking through once people mobilize to do one thing, how it then channels or cascades into other forms of activism. Um, I mean, I can say a couple of insights from the research. I mean, one is that once people get out in the streets and do something, it really is a question of whether there's organizational infrastructure to translate that action into longer term engagement. And that means that there need to be groups and individuals who can help say, oh, you care about this issue. Here is a campaign we're doing in your community. Here's a campaign we're doing around an election that you can get involved in. That can lead to more sustained action. Just coming out for a one-off on a weekend, though, doesn't do as much as you know one might hope. So there needs to be longer-term engagement. Um, the other thing with regard to cascading that might be worth talking about here is that most people who engage in confrontational action as a shocker, as a disruptor, either way, throwing food, crazy gluing, whatnot, those people don't start out there. They usually start out trying something else and finding it's just ineffective. And so then they start to think about what else can I do? And they scale up their actions. 
the big question that, you know, a lot of my research and my current research has been focusing on is when do we see an escalation into more confrontation that can even lead to violence? And that is, I think, a really important question. We don't have enough data on that. And most of the research that's been done around this has been done, you know, when violence happens and in advanced, advanced industrialized nations, we find that that hasn't happened in quite a bit of time, which, you know, I think is nice, but that means we don't know as much about how it will work today versus how it worked in the past. What I can say, though, is that violence, as I document in my new book, is much more likely to come when, you know, when you have activists doing nonviolent civil disobedience, like throwing food or crazy gluing or blocking a building. It's much more likely to come from counter protesters or to come from law enforcement that's being repressive rather than coming from the activists themselves. And that's where the escalation can start. But once violence happens, there's a lot of evidence that the violence will, you know, can blossom into, into more violence. So it's really important to try to keep that tamp down. And that's where I wonder if this statement by the minister in France might do more harm than good. Coming up, I continue my conversation with Dana Fisher after this short break. You talk about a radical flank. What type of person, I suppose in terms of age maybe, in terms of class, becomes an activist on that level? Well, what we've seen so far and what my research has shown, shown so far is that the radical flank in the climate movement, at least, which is where I have the most data on this specific subject, tends to be a person who is either you know, a young person, university, a little bit after university aged, or an older person around retirement age. We see what we call a bimodal distribution there. Uh, in some ways, that's due to the fact that people have to have what we call biographical availability, which means that they have time on their hands both to go out and engage in nonviolent civil disobedience and that they don't have anybody waiting at home for them to take care of them or pick them up at school. Um, and if you get arrested, you can't do that. People who are engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience schedule in getting arrested because they know that's very likely to happen. And, you know, in general, people like, you know, like I have children at home. I have to get home at the end of the day or else People are not going to eat. They're not going to be able to do anything. And, and I have to take care of my family. So people with, you know, with small kids all, you know, up until they, they leave the home are not going to be as likely to engage. Historically, we've seen a lot more young people engaging in a radical flank. The climate movement's a little different. We do see um, older people, including Roger Hallam, who have gotten involved. And many of them are returning to activism after a period where they went through their, you know, their middle age of raising kids. And now they're empty nesters and they have that ability. Uh, they have that ability. Regarding class, at least in the climate movement, most people who have been engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience so far are highly educated, which suggests they're from an, a higher uh, socioeconomic class. Um, and that is partially due to the fact that people who have more resources available to them are more comfortable getting arrested because they may not get paid for the day. They're not on a, they don't have to punch a clock. So they don't have to worry that they're going to lose their jobs. They have resources available to bail themselves out. What will be an interesting tipping point is as the climate crisis worsens and more and more people take to the streets, more and more people engage in civil disobedience, we will see people from a broader range of socioeconomic classes coming out and engaging and people with less privilege, with less, with more to lose and less capacity to get arrested and 
and lose time and lose jobs, people who are experiencing that will likely be more likely to get aggressive because they have more on the line, which means it takes more to activate them to engage in this kind of activism. But once they engage, it can cascade quite quickly. So I think that that's an interesting tipping point. We haven't seen it yet. We saw some of that around the protests that happened after George Floyd was murdered in the United States. Um, we saw the largest long-term period of protests that we've had in America's history. And we did see a much broader range of people taking to the streets around that because of the injustices there. Today, we don't see that yet. But that's you know what I expect will probably be coming in the not too distant future. Now, it seems to me that the science is difficult to understand around the climate crisis. It's difficult to communicate effectively, uh, I think. And that's a barrier for people understanding the urgency of the crisis. But then there are banner events that are, I suppose, easier to grasp, you know, that motivate people like COP28 in Dubai, in the UAE, an oil producing nation. The chief executive was the head of a state owned oil company. What message did that send to anyone concerned about the climate crisis? Did it encourage activism, even radical activism? First and foremost, the fact that the climate negotiations have been relegated to petrostates and will be again next year, where the leaders, the presidency is always uh, identified by the host nation, absolutely sends a message. I mean, it's interesting because these petrostates also tend to be um, not very open to democratic participation and activism, and they really have isolated and deterred people from engaging in activism. So we see more peaceful negotiations because activists either can't get in the country or can't actually engage in kind of a transparent discussion about the climate crisis. We also see more and more desperation at the same time. If you think about people coming from small island states who are literally experiencing, you know, sea level rise to the degree that many areas are having to relocate or, you know, or just abandon their countries. As desperation grows, the regime is isolating itself in such a way that we will, I mean, we will see more attention around climate change as these different rounds of negotiations take place. But given the way that they're being relegated to petrol states and they're getting such a leadership and such a prominent role in the negotiations, it makes it harder to take the take the negotiations seriously or have any faith that these negotiations will yield the kind of systemic changes that are needed. I mean, I wanted to go back to that point that you mentioned about the science being difficult to understand. And I actually, I'm going to push back on that and say at this point, there's so much consensus around the science of climate change in terms of the, the, the fact that climate change is very much the product of our burning of fossil fuels. And until nations and individuals get off fossil fuels and we change our entire industrial system so they no longer use fossil fuels, we have a huge problem and we're going to continue this crisis. You know, we don't all have to understand these exact processes, but to understand how we're contributing to the process is absolutely necessary and pretty easy to understand. But one of the messages that I think absolutely needs to come out and that I focus on in my new book is that even if we individually want to make personal change to address climate change in our individual lives, it's impossible to get off fossil fuels without the system changing. Can I read a quote to you from your own book? Um, it's a very hopeful quote. And you say, the social responses to the pandemic showed us that the type of systemic changes needed to address the climate crisis are possible. But I think perhaps 
there's a reality check maybe there because the responses to the pandemic were born out of real fear that if you got infected, there is a high possibility that you'd be very, very sick. You could even die within a couple of weeks. And for the climate crisis, it's very hard for people to understand timeframes, I think. Is that kind of mobilization only possible if we are feeling the extreme impacts of climate change? Unfortunately, that is absolutely true. And that that's the basic, you just summarize the basic theme of the book, which is that I think that for us to get from climate shocks to climate action, we all need to experience climate shocks and we need to experience it personally. We need to experience within our communities, within our families, within our personal networks. And then we need to feel the risk of it ourselves. And until we do, the idea that there will be enough pressure to shift the entire economic system that we have built around the burning of fossil fuels. You know, I've been studying this and working on this for 25 years. And initially we started this out worried about polar bears. And we would have these conversations. You know, I used to go to the climate negotiations. There would be these conversations about how do we get people to understand that we should care about polar bears and that we should worry about the effects on ecosystems And we no longer have to talk about it that way. I mean, I have people down the street here in my neighborhood who during an extreme weather event last summer had a tree, a huge tree fall and break their house in half, like literally in half. The the house is now abandoned and, you know, and the people have been unhoused because of it. And we're going to see more and more of that. We can see lots of examples of it right now in Chile, right now in California, where these atmospheric rivers are causing extreme weather due to the warming waters that are, you know, that are unprecedented. So we're going to see more and more of it. But I do not think that we will see the kind of societal shift that happened during the beginning of the pandemic when people were still afraid of dying and passing, you know, a death sentence on to members of their families until people have that level of visceral connection to the climate crisis. Now, we know this year globally is the year of elections. So many elections going to take place this Mm -hmm. year. And of course, in the US, presidential election is the one we're hearing about a lot at the moment. Um, Is climate change going to be an issue? Climate change should be an issue. There was just an article that came out in The Nation saying climate change should be an issue, but where is it in the campaign? I mean, and and to be honest, at the presidential level, It makes sense that people aren't talking about climate change because it's basically uh, black and white in terms of the contrast between Donald Trump, who is the Republican leader and likely Republican nominee unless the courts take action, versus Joe Biden, who has been most aggressive on climate change of any president in U.S. history. So it's very hard to have a conversation about that because anybody who really cares about doing something about climate change absolutely cannot support Trump, right? So that's at the at the highest level in the United States. As the congressional elections get more attention and that will heat up as we move through the year because the entire House of Representatives as well as a third of the Senate is up for election as well, I think climate change will get a lot more attention. It absolutely should because we just lived through the hottest January on record ever and we have all of these unprecedented effects of climate change that we're experiencing. Many, many of the natural scientists are talking about how we're, we're fast approaching tipping points and we're seeing it in the ways that not only um, our climate are changing, but so many effects of that, that I just think it's, it's, it'll be impossible not to talk about it. I'm surprised it hasn't gotten more attention yet, but I just think that people are only just starting to focus there and think about it. 
Donna, could we end on a hopeful note? I always try to end any discussion we have on the climate crisis on a hopeful note because we have to have hope. Um, Of course. Do you think the actions of climate activists of any stripe will make a difference? The actions of activists of all type will make a difference. And in fact, one of the things that I try to make really clear in the book is the fact that it will take all people engaging as activists in the radical flank as shockers or disruptors, as well as moderate factions that are absolutely needed, who are going to work through the political system, work through, you know, legal channels to take action, along with everyday citizens who are trying to build resilience within their communities. It will take everybody together working to address the climate crisis. And, you know, the last line of the book I end with, I say, you know, as unfair as it seems, the future is up to us. And that's absolutely true, that we are going to be the ones who are going to have to save ourselves. Nobody's coming to do it. Businesses are really divided about it. States are having all of these problems because of the vested interests that have privileged access to resources within all of the countries that are making the big decisions right now. And that means that we ourselves are going to have to rise up and put pressure on our states and change systems within our communities. We can do it. But I just think that anybody who is waiting around for somebody else to do it for us is going to have to come to that realization. But I do believe it's possible. And that's the the hopeful note there. Dana Fisher, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. For more reporting on the climate crisis, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode is produced by John Casey. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.